everybody, it's Landon Witsit uh, at the Senate of Mid-America. Welcome to this week's Soma Cast, uh, where we have chats with, uh, with leaders from around the church about how they're enduring this time in particular. With me, uh, as usual, carryover from our Two Good Spies podcast is uh, Brian Ellison. Hi, Brian. Hello, Landon. It's good to be with you, as always. It's good to be with you as always, even though we are way more than the required six feet away. I still, uh, I'm still sad about that. I am sad about that as well. I, I am finding in these days that um, I, I, it, I don't mind working from home. Actually, I think that can be pretty productive and enjoyable, but um, I am really missing the human connection with people kind of after work. Um, it's yep. weird to not go to restaurants. It's weird to not be with church communities. It's, mm-hmm. it's just weird. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so friends, one thing that you may not know is that on Saturday, two of my boys uh, graduated, one from college and one from high school, and we had a makeshift DIY graduation on our front porch. We mapped out at least six feet between where we put everything. Brian was one of the graduation speakers, and it was an odd experience to have to see a lot of people even though we were apart, I mean, we were all appropriate, everybody was safe. It was still weird to see to see that many people. Was it weird for you? Have you been out much and see to see that many people, Brian? Uh, you know, I've, I've been out to some public parks where people um, were not necessarily practicing appropriate social distancing. You were much more right. attentive to that than uh, than a lot of other people were. But um, but yeah, it is it is still jarring. I mean, even even my partner and I uh, have commented that when one of us walks up to the other, um, we it, it's it's suddenly surprising when there's someone standing next to you. And you're like, oh wait, you're allowed to. <laughs> we we're we're not social distancing, but uh, it is it, it's very uh, it has changed our sensitivity to um, to proximity in some really interesting ways that I think will be interesting going forward. Like, will we ever hug at church oh, again? Right. Like, or will we have to ask and sort of approach slowly? And uh, it's I think a lot of things are going to be very different. Yeah, I've had to remind myself that people are not the problem. There's this thing that may or may not be in them. I don't need to be afraid of people. But that's, as you say, going to take a while to uh, to get over. But you and I are not church, uh, like congregational pastors. We don't do that. But we do have a friend with us uh, today who is a congregational pastor. Uh, and we'd like to bring her on. This is, uh, friends, uh, please please welcome to the pod, Nicole Parton Abdenor. Hi, Nicole. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, Nicole, we asked Nicole to come on because Nicole has some pretty uh, pretty relevant experience of pastoring in the time of crisis. Uh, Nicole, in just a second, I'm going to ask you to tell us about your, your current spot. But um, Nicole uh, served as associate pastor for Christian education at the St. Charles Avenue Presbyterian Church um, in New Orleans, Louisiana, and uh, or is Louisiana. Is that, is, that how, is that how they say it down there? Yeah, yes, that's right. Yeah, you've got to... <laughs> <laughs> Right. I went to I went to no, school novice. in no yeah novice. I went to school in Louisville, not Louisville, okay. but yes. Louisville. So, um, but on the a year to the day of you taking your job, my understanding is that's when uh, that's when Katrina made landfall there in New Orleans. Is that right? It, my uh, ordination date, a year oh, to the date ordination. that I was ordained. So I, wow. I started in, in serving the church in May and then went to my home congregation to be ordained on August the 29th. And a year later is when the hurricane made landfall. Wow. Well, before you get into telling us a little bit about uh, the, the months after, year after 
honestly, I mean, and that recovery is still going on. Brian and I were just in yes. New Orleans in December and there's still recovery going on. Yes. Um, before you do that, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you are right now and the work that you're doing right now? Sure. So I currently am serving as an associate pastor at the Palmasia Presbyterian Church in Tampa, Florida. It's a wonderful congregation. It's a larger church uh, that is really uh, committed to witnessing to Christ and, and serving our neighbors, both locally and abroad. I am a, I, a generalist probably in every sense of the term, though I was called to be the associate for congregational care uh, that has morphed over the 14 years that I have served this particular congregation in some really surprising and wonderful and delightful ways. I bet, I bet. Well, take us back to that day um, when all hell broke loose and here you are newly ordained with your colleagues. Uh, how many colleagues did you have at the time there at, at the church? So there were three uh, ordained uh, clergy folks at uh, St. Charles at the time. I was the newest one to come aboard. I was the youngest. I, it was my first call. I went straight from college to seminary <laughs> to St. Charles Avenue. So they really got uh, a very inexperienced um individual when they called me there. Uh, God bless them and I will be forever grateful uh, for all that they taught me in the short time that I was there. Um, but, but yeah, so we watched this impending storm with the rest of the world. It, it made landfall in New Orleans and I was not there. <laughs> we, had, we had evacuated, we had made the decision to close the church that particular Sunday. And so I watched it with a friend in Birmingham, Alabama. And of course, the way that that narrative unfolded, there was the impact of the storm, but then it wasn't until several days later when the levees broke that really the, the enormity of the devastation struck that city and made a huge, a huge impact to the point that uh, for many of us, we were outside of the city for I, I forget now at this point whether it was six weeks or eight weeks, um, but during that time the church reconvened in Houston, Texas, just because geographically where New Orleans is located, a large number of folks have families and just naturally that was where they evacuated. And so uh, as a church staff we reconvened and began working from the basement of the Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church in Houston, uh, which is where we stayed until the next hurricane ran us out of Houston. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, an, it was a strange and an interesting time. St. Charles Avenue uh, fared as a church relatively well, comparatively speaking. They certainly suffered some storm damage but they did not suffer the devastation of a flood from where they were. I personally, when I made it back into the city, there was minor storm damage done to the house that I was renting, but it did not flood. And so, uh, but that was not the narrative, of course, of many people who were members of the congregation and certainly not of many of our neighbors. Yeah, I want to ask about what that, was like, particularly in the moments, um, you know, after the storm hit those first week or two and the, the, the distance you had, physical geographic distance, um, but also communication barriers, not necessarily 
being able to, to communicate as clearly. I, I'm thinking about our current situation, of course, um, and I don't want to jump to, to all of the comparisons because it doesn't a perfect match, but, but, but one of the things that has seemed really hard for people is, is that not being able to be close or be physically together. And I have to think that was, that was an issue for quite some time for you. It was an issue. It was an issue for an extended period of time. And so one of the, one of the unique things that was able to happen uh, with our time in Houston was the pastoral staff and then a number of other church staff folks, in addition to, I would say, about 50 church members were in that area. And so we began being the church from that location. Um, we certainly worshiped with that congregation on Sunday mornings, but we began to have a Wednesday evening St. Charles Avenue Presbyterian Church Vesper service uh, that folks were able to come and to be a part of. Now, that was only for those folks who were in Houston, uh, because that was back before we all became so very proficient in this virtual reality that we currently are existing in. Um, and so it was a different experience, though, certainly for those folks who had evacuated to places that were farther away, for those folks who, even if they didn't evacuate quite so far away initially because of the damage that was done to their home and the length of time that the recovery was going to take for them and the job losses that happened ended up temporarily um, and some of them permanently transitioning to other parts of the country. Um, that distance was, uh, was really hard. And the isolation was felt in those ways, but also in terms of just trying to make contact with people, trying to find people. Um, as, as you all will remember in the aftermath of the storm, part of it was, you know, trying to locate folks who uh, you had just really lost contact with to make certain that they were okay. You mentioned that, that uh, at, at that time, I, mean, I don't even think Zoom existed. This was, this was not a thing that we, that we did. Um, so much was lost by so many people, uh, the loss of their, their homes, livelihoods in some case, but certainly community. Um, and we know from, from our work as pastors um, and those of us who are trained in, in serving groups of people that when you lose those kinds of things, uh, the grief cycle starts almost immediately. And, it, and it's not a linear thing. It's a very messy thing. Can you talk a little bit about, about the grief that you all experience and how, how you and your colleagues and you yourselves dealt with that grief and worked through that grief? You know, one of the one of the gifts of being a part of this connectional church is that very early on, when we were back in the city, uh, PDA came <laughs> and sent in folks to meet with us, to meet with church staff, to begin those conversations and to begin to begin that process. And I I still remember walking into that first meeting. Um, being just annoyed. I mean, I was annoyed that this person from the outside was sort of calling us together. I was annoyed. Didn't, didn't they know that I had other things to be doing than coming to sit in this circle to kind of kumbaya together? 
I did this, not have. This, we should say this is Presbyterian Disaster Assistance. So it's a mm -hmm. national agency of the Presbyterian Church that comes in in times of crisis like this. Yes, yes. And I mean, I think the day before I had been helping a church family gut their house and haul all of their belongings to the curbside and pull out, you know, molded dry drywall. And I mean, that was what pastoral care in that moment looked like. And, and here we were being summons together <laughs> um, to listen to this person talk about self-care and uh, the grief that we were experiencing and how to do that. Um, and it took me a while to actually hear and internalize and to recognize the gift of that time because it was certainly a gift. Uh, because until that moment, um, I don't think I was able to my, for myself to name the grief that I was experiencing. As someone who was new to the city, this was, this was not where I had family. I did not have deep roots. This was a new community for me, which presented its own challenges, right? I mean, in terms of, as you talk about support and rootedness and community, this was a very new and fresh relationship and place for me personally. I moved there as a single person, so, you know, did not have a partner or a spouse uh, to, on which to keep me grounded um, at, on the home front. And so I was experiencing this alone, if you will, um, from my closest inner circle and the people who I relied on for support. Uh, but PDA coming in and being able to name for us the trauma that we ourselves, even if our homes hadn't flooded, <laughs> even if we hadn't lost everything, even if we were employed still, thanks be to God for all of those things, but the, the communal loss and the trauma that we were uh, experiencing as a community and then the, the secondary trauma that we as pastors were experiencing as we heard people's stories. <laughs> as we walked into the remnants of their homes and had to walk alongside of them as they did the hard work of throwing out, you know, precious family heirlooms and their, their college graduates, you know, first grade, you know, nativity project from Sunday school. Um, that was trauma in and of itself. And so the ability to recognize that and allowed me at least, then the ability and the space and the permission to begin to tend to that grief. So that my work was not only walking alongside other people in their grief, but giving myself permission that I too needed to grieve in order for me to get up the next day and to walk alongside of people in their grief. I needed to be able to go home at night and do what I needed to do to process and to work through all of the, all of the stuff that I was then carrying yeah. around and experiencing. How much did it feel like your grieving, the, what you're, you're describing, your own trauma and sense of um, uncertainty and anxiety about what's happening, how much of that did it feel like you had to process alone, as you say, when you go home at night, and how much of that did you share with the people 
you were serving as pastor. I think I think a lot of pastors right now are feeling, um, as as you said, that not that they themselves have lost, not that someone close to them has died of COVID, but that there's this generalized sense of anxiety and they don't know who they can talk with about it. Do they need to be the strong uh, figure that everyone else comes to? How, how did you process that? You know, I relied a lot on and was so very grateful having been a new graduate of the seminary. Um, professors were one of the folks who reached out and really were a lifeline for me um, in that time and intending and, and, and uh, to me and being a resource to me. And so I think that one of the things that, that particularly became aware, I became aware of in that moment was utilizing the moment of proclamation, utilizing worship as the space in which as a community, we have common language, we have uh, common experiences when we come together and to rely on that to then carry us together through a process of uh, naming our own grief, naming uh, our guilt, <laughs> you know, for those who, who weren't experiencing it to the degree that others were to name sort of that survivor's guilt of, you know, why them, why not me? Um, and so, and, and I think that, and it took me a while because of course, being a fresh seminary graduate at the time, I had been instructed to not utilize I vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you don't want to make the sermon about you. <laughs> we all know that. We don't want to do that. And yet in times of, in times of communal crisis, we're the ones who have the opportunity in that moment to name the things and to bear witness to the things that are going on in the community. And I found that in those moments, to be able to lift up that we that you know that collective we are experiencing this, and that sometimes that includes um, some eye language. Sometimes it does include being able to name, "You are not alone. You are not alone. Your faith is not weak." If you are on your knees, crying in the middle of the night, going, "Why, God, why?" Your faith is not weak. I too. <laughs> Have been on my knees. Um, it gives it gives the community then the the permission uh, to to live into and to lean into that moment without thinking that the church that their pastors somehow have <laughs> have a higher connection to God and therefore they're able to somehow process all of this seamlessly um, and without the depth of emotion and pain that they themselves are experiencing. So it's a it's a and that brings people together. That's a you have really... to do that without falling apart, right? I mean, you have to be able to do that without them seeking out and feeling like they need to tend and care to you in that moment. But that doesn't mean that we can't name it. That is, that is, a, that is a great point that you're making. It reminds me of um, professor of homiletics at Columbia Seminary, uh, Anna Carter Florence, uh, wrote a book 
several years ago called Preaching as Testimony. And what she said is it's our job to get into the text, wrestle with that text, and then come out and bear witness to what that text did on us and invite people into that. I hear you saying mm -hmm. the same thing about, about these moments. Here's what this moment is doing to me. Here's, here's maybe where I am struggling, or here's where the, the text or the, the tradition or the theology is bringing me uh, some measure of relief. I really, I'm really appreciating that. Yeah, and that, that, that connection to the biblical text is so, you know, is so important. I think that in times of crisis, um, that the crisis itself pushes us in those moments as proclaimers of the word to really be able to unpack and to, ex to experience the text in new ways that don't allow us to have sort of this passive separateness from the struggles that scripture bears witness to that have been a part of God's, you know, the story of God's people uh, for all time and yet bears witness to God's presence in and through all those times. Yes, I've, I, I have always known the power of the wisdom literature, but I got to tell you, the Psalms and Ecclesiastes right now are the things that are carrying me through. I find particular relevance in these moments. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that, that, that is happening right now is, is folks are starting to get bored of, of lockdown. They're starting to get uh, tired of this. Um, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a silent killer. We don't see it. You know, it's, it's not like a hurricane or, or here where I am in Kansas city, where Brian and I are, it's not a tornado. It's not a thing that comes through and just rips devastation. It's a, it's a silent thing. And so it's easy to have an out of sight, out of mind kind of experience and we can get bored with it. And, and, and this could go on for a long time. And as I said, uh, in the intro, you know, Brian and I were in new Orleans in December and recovery is still happening. These, these things are long processes. How, how have you um, thought about in, in the intervening years? How did you and your colleagues think about this uh, way back when, this, this notion of, of, of being patient, um, working this through? Because it's, it's a marathon. It's not a, it's not a sprint. How, how did you all work through that with your people? You know, it is, it is certainly a marathon. And one of the really interesting things I wish I could say that we had the foresight of that at the time. I mean, I think that we, we knew that recovery was going to be a long experience for the city as a whole. One of the things that happened was the congregation, because it did fare well because of its geographic location within the city, um, the storm, allowed, provided for them to have the opportunity to reimagine their mission. And, and, and that, that, that happened in the basement of that church in Houston, as we were receiving calls from colleagues uh, who were offering up help, whether it was physical help of people coming in to do things, to, to build, to gut, whether it was supplies. Um, we had all of these resources coming towards us and we had to figure out what to do with them. And so this congregation, which up until that point, they, they had always had a history of mission and service within the community. Um, but, you know, I, I would say that for the most part, for most people, it involved in extending their leadership on boards 
It involved um, offering of financial resources. And one of the things that happened is they became a hub for mission and they gave birth to uh, a program called Rhino, Rebuilding Hope in New Orleans, which when those conversations began in that basement, I think we probably thought that the church would be doing that for two years, maybe three years. Um, but they are re Rhino continues today um, to be a central part of that congregation's mission and ministry. It shifted, I think, their identity and their understanding of how God was calling them to engage with their community and with the world. And so it is amazing to me that now 15 years later, 15 years, that's yeah, 15 years later, that's, that's who they are. I never would have projected that it would still have continued to be a part of their, part of their mission. So in terms of it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. What I would say is uh, we have to acknowledge that. So we have to tend to and we have to care for ourselves so that we can go the distance. Um, and we have to, but we also, it's a fine line because we, we don't want to limit our creativity to think that we have to create something and determine now the next 15 to 20 years out of this experience we have to be open to how it's going to develop we but it might look like a complete and utter flop to begin with right i mean what we what we might be called to do in this moment it may work really well for a month or a week um but but it may not and so this idea and this openness i, I think it has to be an openness to really being transformed for the long haul. I mean, that's just the way God works, right? I mean, God transforms God's people and we ought not to be afraid of that. Uh, we cannot control it. It's something that we need to be open to exploring to see where God's going to take us. And we've got to do the tending work so that we can, so that we can get there. So I guess the natural question then is, uh, you're a pastor serving a congregation now in a very different kind of crisis and a very different kind of grief and anxiety and congregational experience. And yet, again, there's this opportunity to rethink the mission and ministry to which you as a pastor, to which your congregation is called. Um, it's early, but as you think about it, I mean, what are, what are some possibilities? What are, what are the kinds of things that in your imagination, at least at this point, you think congregations, maybe even yours, might be called to do that's different uh, in terms of mission and ministry? Mm -hmm. that's, a great, that's a great question. Um, I wish I had a clear answer to that. Uh, you know, one of the things that has been that has been surprising, that has been an oper a forced opportunity in this moment is this idea that of connecting and the outreach beyond the folks who are in our neighborhood. I serve a congregation that really, I, even though it's a large congregation, 
it identifies itself as a neighborhood church. And so those are the folks that, that we, when we talk about our internal program and our internal ministries, when we are doing our worship planning and our, the crafting of sermons, we are thinking about and we are exegeting those folks who are coming into those walls from the neighborhood that we know. And yet now on Sunday mornings, <laughs> our reach is going so much further. I mean, I'm receiving emails from people who are living, you know, who live in Georgia and in the Northeast that I'm wondering, how did you get, how in the world did you get connected to Palmasia Presbyterian Church? You, you know, who, who are your people? <laughs> who are you related to? We'll come to find out they're not related to anyone. <laughs> Right? I mean, they are, but but there's not that familial connection that it can naturally track down. And that really, I think, has profound impact for us as a congregation because now that we've entered into this virtual world to a different degree than we had in the past, we also are tending to the sheep of our, of our flock who are no longer able to come to the building in a much better way. Um, I mean, our outreach, I think, to, the, to those who find themselves disconnected from the community because of age or illness feel much more connected to us now because we are exploring what it means to create community when we can't be a be together. And that impacts all of us at this point. But, but what is clear is we cannot go back to being the way we were before all of this, because we have extended a lifeline and a connectivity to these folks that we, we can't turn our backs on them anymore. I mean, you know, and so it's about fine tuning that. What does that look like? How can we continue that? And then and then the other question is, and what do we do about these folks who are connecting to us in different places who may never come through the doors? What is, what is, our, what is our obligation? What is our calling to minister to them? How do we exegete that, that congregation? <laughs> um, those are questions that we're talking about as a pastoral staff on a pretty consistent and regular basis now as we try to figure out what that, what that looks like. Yeah, those are, those are the same questions that Brian and I hear uh, all, all of our colleagues asking, all of your colleagues asking. I think those are the right questions. Uh, and rest assured, we are going to be praying uh, for you particularly and uh, your staff and the members at Palmasia uh, in the days ahead. Um, folks like you, Nicole, are doing incredible work. We see you. We see what you're doing. And those of us who are served by you are really, really grateful. Um, before we let you go, um, what are things that have come into your, your, your sphere of reference? Maybe something you've read, um, books, articles, maybe movies, podcasts. What, what are some things that, that are giving you hope, giving you life, or that you just, that's just fun? I mean, I'll tell you, I've been reading sourdough baking books like they are going out of style. <laughs> I'm that guy. You're that guy, yeah. I'm, I'm that guy. You what have about all the yeast. Yeah. Where is all of my yeast? 
not that he wasn't doing some really interesting and crazy things before all of this. Let's be clear. <laughs> oh, get this though. I had a friend who just wrote us the other day and she said that she has a sourdough starter that was propagated in Giza. And she said, I think that, she said, the story I'm telling myself is that the, this yeast is related to the first yeast that baked the first bread. I was like, give it to me. And she's going to give me some of that starter. I'm so excited. But enough about me. What about you, Nicole? What's, what's bringing you life and joy? Enough about no, you. Let's talk no, about I, you. I'm sorry, Nicole. I, I, thanks for being with us. But really, we're going to switch topics now to Landon's sourdough starter. Yes. It, I'm sure no one would mind. As long as he, you know, shares, we're, we're good, we're good. Happily, bread for the world, bread for yeah, the world. Bread for the world. You know, one of the gifts of, uh, that I have experienced in this time is uh, the opportunity to read more and to read more fiction. So that's been my guilty pleasure is that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a mom. I have three young. There are no guilty pleasures, Nicole. They're just pleasures <laughs> They're that just we pleasures. like. They're just no pleasures. No guilt. There's just pleasures. You know, but being a, being a mom of three younger kids, working full time, I started uh, my doctor of ministry degree this past year. So for the last year, I have not read anything of my own choosing that has not had a very specific purpose and a need and a requirement for me to read. So I've been reading fiction and two things that I've read recently that I just love. And I, if, um, if you haven't read them and then everyone needs to read them, I think. Uh, but, uh, all of again, which is the sequel to the Olive Kitteridge book, um, is, phenomenal and I found to be just as delightful and engaging as the first book. And then A Man Called Ove. I finally got around to reading A Man Called Ove. And you know, both of those, not only are both authors wonderful storytellers, but the characters in those books, I mean, you laugh, you cry. It helps develop empathy because here you see these flawed characters, but you see them from every dimension. And when we engage with one another, we only engage often on one level. And so you know, I think that the reading of fiction has gotten, has helped me to get back in touch with a little bit of empathy, uh, which we all need a little more of in this time while we are all stressed and struggling. Amen. Yeah, I, I, think I, a, I cannot a lot of, recommend. Go ahead, Brian. No, I was just saying, I think a lot of people are finding that if they do have a little more time, um, novels, poetry, a lot of people I know have taken up poetry who hadn't read poetry in decades. Mm -hmm. um, I think those, and especially as we're losing access to some other artistic expressions, uh, you know, um, concerts uh, are, who knows when we'll have concerts again, or museums are closed, but, but, but words are, are still right here. So I hope we can use that. They are. That's a really great point. And they take us to other places when we cannot go physically. Yeah. Nicole, have you read anything else from Frederick Bachman, the author of Man Called Ove? I don't believe that I have. And so that He's is my on my list. Is he? Do you have a recommendation? What should I read next? Just Everything anything. that he's written is amazing. Uh, uh, I, I would not recommend people read Beartown right now. It's uh, It's got a bit of trauma to it. But um, I would recommend My Grandma Wants Me to Tell You She's So Sorry, uh, which is 
just a delightful, it's written perspective of a seven-year-old girl. And it's, it's shocking uh, how effective Man does. And then, uh, and then there's a sequel to that. I think it's called Brit Marie was here, but anything, anything Frederick Bachman writes and anything Frederick Bachman and Patchett and uh, Michael Chabon, I'll recommend any yes. of their books to anybody all the time. Well, it has been a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for being willing to take some time and share your share your experience, share the wisdom that you've developed from that. Um, it is clear that you are full of energy, intelligence, imagination, and love. And we're grateful that you've given a little bit of that uh, to us today. So thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. Thank you. It's been good, good fun. But best wishes to you all as you are carrying out ministry. Uh, where you are. And uh, just as you uh, offered up your prayers for me, know that I will be praying for all of the good folks that you are working with there uh, in Kansas and the surrounding area. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Nicole.